0: Welcome to the Quantified Body, Episode 8. I'm Damien Blankensop, your host. What is it that makes our bodies stronger? What is it that gives them greater longevity? What is it that gives them greater resilience to disease and greater performance overall? The strange answer to this is that often something that harms us a little bit, stresses us a bit, is what ends up making us stronger. The process is known as hormesis and applies to pretty much everything we can think of. Low doses of all types of stressors can make us better by stimulating us to adapt. So exercise is a well-known one. Building muscle, getting better at cardiovascular exercise, emotional stress, radiation even, natural pesticides found in plants, also known as phytonutrients, and so on and on. When the dose is too high, though, it proves to do the opposite. It makes us weaker. So it's about balance. But how do we know when we get the dose of stress just right so that we get positive results we get positive adaptation rather than going backwards today's guest todd becker runs the popular blog gettingstronger.org which is dedicated solely to the topic of hormesis and looking into the research and philosophy of using it to improve our lives todd is a scientist from silicon valley working in biotech and runs his own n equals one experiments with hormesis in a wide variety of areas such as improving his eyesight to improving estimated longevity and general health. In particular, he's experimented with improving his baseline and temporary heart rate variability, a measure we've looked at before, which can be used as a proxy for longevity. And he's done this with a long list of activities from the well-researched to the more experimental. In this show, he talks about the outcomes, what worked, what didn't, and the usefulness of tracking heart rate variability for general health and longevity. You can get the show notes for today's episode, the MP3 download and the interview transcript by going to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode eight. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise. Find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hi, Todd. Great to have you on the Quantified Body Show. Thank you very much for making your time available today.
1: It's great. I'm happy to join you.
0: Yeah, so you've got a, a very interesting site, which is pretty much fully dedicated to the topic of hormesis, which is called Getting Stronger. Could you talk quickly, what prompted you to take an interest in hormesis and this topic when you first started out?
1: Well, it wasn't any one thing. I just noticed certain patterns in what made me healthier. And it really came from a variety of different areas. I would say probably one of the most pivotal experiences was learning that I could improve my eyesight without glasses, and that was probably almost 15 years ago. And understanding that the eye can respond to stimuli and vision can improve very analogously to the way that uh, weightlifters gain muscular strength by going into the gym and training. And then I started to think about how, you know, that's true about so many aspects of physiology from the immune system, which benefits by being tested and and exposed. And a lot of, I think, autoimmune and immune problems come from an underactive immune system or or an overactive immune system that's not trained properly. Thinking about how calluses form on the feet when you walk barefoot and how actually uh, when I started doing barefoot running, Rather than these cushy shoes really providing a benefit by cushioning me and and you know protecting me, are actually weakening me. And by exposing my feet and my calves and knees and really the whole musculature to the shock that it was designed to withstand, actually you know, got stronger and less prone to injury. And then thinking about how um, bones and the skeletal system responds it really almost requires stress. When astronauts go out into space and experience weightlessness, they they rapidly lose uh, bone density and it's hard for them to regain when they return really just starting to think about the body as an adaptive system and think about the factors that influence that and then i did some reading and i think hormesis is this concept that lies really at the nexus of all of those different uh, adaptive phenomena
0: mm-hmm. so, so how long have you been playing around with this idea
1: i think if you go back to the vision improvement idea that's 15 years and even before that, I think another experience that led into this is low-carb dieting, which I first encountered in the mid-90s, I didn't really realize that at first uh, ketosis is a form of hormesis. But what happened is I started to think about this framework and how much you can explain with it. And of course, it doesn't explain everything. I mean, it's not certainly not the only factor in health, but I think it's an important one and it's been overlooked. So that's why I felt that there would be a, um, an interest in a blog that really focused on that concept.
0: Right, right. I like the way you put it. It's like a nice little framework to be able to look at things. And I know you've done a bunch of your own experiments, which is what we want to talk about. Just before that, to give people an idea of how broad this is, there's a whole number of topics uh, you've looked at and referenced, like exercise you brought up, phytonutrients in plants, like some of the the, the things that we thought were, you know, had antioxidative and protective effect actually... Are working on a basis of hormesis as well. You talk about sunlight radiation. Have you looked at the topic of uh, pesticides?
1: A little bit. Um, I would say that, you know. Na- I guess when you talk about phytonutrients, these are really natural pesticides. If you think about it, there's been this biological arms race where plants want to be want to avoid being eaten, right? And predators want to eat them, so uh, they develop a more and more effective toxins to scare you off. But uh, predators that are able to detoxify those natural pesticides uh, get the spoils. So it's kind of this back and forth. But as far as artificial pesticides, I think there's probably some element of that. I know there's been some somewhat controversial analysis of dioxin, which is normally thought of as highly toxic, is actually having some hormetic benefits at low dose. So even artificial toxins can play that role.
0: Yeah. You're aware of the work of Dr. Bruce Ames?
1: Yes, right. I think he was instrumental there. and He certainly has, has um, been critical of modern toxicology and, and the, the sort of linear, no-threshold concept that everything is toxic down to the tiniest measurable dose. Um, even though he developed some of the institutional tests, you know, like the Ames tests that are used to look at mutagenicity or carcinogenicity, you know, he's critical of over-extrapolating with those tests. But I mean, just for your listeners who don't really understand the technical concept of hormesis, it's really the idea that something that's damaging or toxic at higher doses can actually be beneficial at lower doses. And that first seems like a paradox, but then you realize that evolution required us to survive in the face of all kinds of stresses, including toxins and UV radiation and heat and cold. And if we didn't have some method of um, fending off those stresses either by adapting to them and defending ourselves against them or repairing ourselves or our DNA. Once we've been exposed, we would perish. So I think most organisms have some hormetic mechanisms that allow them to adapt to harsh environments and survive. The key is what is that level? What's that sort of magic dose that gives you the stimulating effect as opposed to the inhibitory or detrimental effect? And it can vary quite a bit. I mean, some Substances like alcohol, for example, show hormetic effects at much higher doses than some, uh, say, metals that that are considered much more highly toxic. Only show stimulatory effect at much lower doses. And yeah, there's a couple of researchers who've really done a lot of good work to kind of document the ranges in which different uh, stresses are are hormetic.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult to kind of assess where it's going to be overwhelming. I guess it's not what kills you, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's more like what doesn't overwhelm your your system makes you stronger.
1: Right. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing is if you look at the work of people like um, Edward Calabrese or but Those these are the guys who are really documenting all of this. They'll look sort of at a static type of hormesis where they'll expose, say, a worm or a plant or a microbe or an animal to toxins, and they'll find that dose that is causing damage or disease and that dose that's causing a benefit. But what I'm also interested in the, is the idea that this can be a dynamic type of range that progressively you can become more and more tolerant by gradually exposing yourself to increasing stresses. Of course, there's always a limit, right? You can only tolerate so much radiation or UV or exercise or cold, and there's a limit. But I think um, you'd be surprised at what that range might be
0: right so going back to your analogy of strength training because i think most people understand strength training that you're not going to walk in and lift 100 kilograms the first time but if you start at 50 kilograms or whatever is your level and then after a couple of weeks you work up to 60 kilograms after some recovery and you kind of go through this process you can eventually move up to that 100 so you're kind of saying it's very similar you have an ability to kind of get stronger across all of these different stressors and uh, deal with all of them. Is that the way you look at it?
1: Exactly. I think that the principle is the same. The details are different in each case. And you hit on, I think, a key key principle of doing this effectively, which is gradualism. A lot of people jump in too quickly, have a negative experience, and conclude that they they can't do it. For example, I think a classic example is exposure to cold. After an initial awful exposure, people say, I could never do that. Or fasting is another good example. Some people try to just jump in and skip meals all day. They'll get ravenously hungry or, or have hypoglycemia, and they'll conclude that they're incapable of it, not realizing that if you build up to it gradually, you can adapt. So I think that's a key aspect there. The other thing which you touched on a little bit is, is rest and uh, intermittency. Weightlifters go in, they lift heavy weights, but then they're essentially causing microtrauma or tears to their muscle fibers, and they have to allow for the damage to be repaired. And this is true in any kind of overtraining, right, running, anything. If you don't allow that period of recovery, you're not going to get the benefit. Um, So I think gradualism, you know, progressive increase and then allowing adequate rest and repair, um, I think these are probably the factors that people overlook and lead them to conclude that this doesn't really work.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of uh, one of my buddies at university who used to come with us to the gym once every three months and um, he would hit it really, really hard. (laughs) And he would go home and he'd feel horrible for three days in in so much pain and he wouldn't come for another three months. (laughs) He'd never get anywhere, (laughs) of course, doing that and he'd be through a lot of pain. So, you know, that's a nice analogy. That's not the way to go about getting stronger as the theme of your blog. Um, It's really to take it gradual, as you say, with all of these things. So what are the mechanics behind how this works? Do we have any ideas about it or is the science very vague at the moment still?
1: I think you can cluster these things into a few different categories. One is physical changes to tissue. So that, the, the example of building muscle, you stimulate, you, you apply a physical stress, cause some damage or change, and then allow the tissue to remodel. The same thing is true with bone. You apply a stress and there are um, part of it is um, directly within the tissue, part of it is the nervous system. Part of it is, is stimulation of hormones, you know, growth hormones, but then there's response. Another really interesting example is vision improvement and particularly uh, reversing myopia. This is a very interesting stressor where by incremental defocus, by causing a slight blur, you actually induce differential growth in the scleral tissue of the eye by stimulating neuromodulators that, that actually grow differentially and cause the eye to change shape it happens very gradually over many many cycles but there have been experiments in in uh, chicks and chimpanzees and then most recently in humans that fitting people with concave or convex lenses you know plus or minus lenses induce these changes in growth literally within the matter of minutes and hours and so there's for these physical stressors Uh, calluses another example of a physical stressor it causes uh, growth factors to build up the tissue. So that's, I think, one type of hormesis. Then I think there are sort of metabolic processes. For example, um, real shifts in nutrient balance. For example, ketosis, uh, deprivation of, of carbohydrate and sugar, causes a shift in expression levels of different lipases, it causes a reduction in insulin, it causes wh- hormonal shifts that, that actually... Upregulate the ability to digest fats, and again, this is a process that might happen over weeks. So there's kind of different timescales.
0: Yeah, just to jump in there can be different according to the person where they're starting from, you know, the condition of their body, and potentially even their gen- genetics as to how quickly or if their their ability to adapt or not.
1: Certainly, I mean, let's take another example: is uh, tanning of skin, right? Some people. Can readily respond by producing the melanin that allows them to uh, tolerate UV and uh, suntan. That's actually protective. Others, you know, probably some of your buddies from the northern part of the UK who may have very fair skin or, or you know, reddish hair, uh, don't have quite that same ability. We have the uh, metabolically, some people can induce lactase that allows them to digest milk. Uh, very rarely, others uh, have no or, or very little more ability to induce it. You're right there's, there's significant genetic variation
0: there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hearing increasingly with gut dysbiosis when people have problems with with their gut, which you know is pretty common these days. But uh, I don't know if you know like a guy called Chris Kresser. Oh, sure. He talks now about using probiotics like kefir, but in very small doses to start with. Otherwise, it kind of overwhelms the gut microbiome. So he it seems like he's using some similar principle to hormesis there and with his patients and people who have problems starts very 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 has to have to start very very small but eventually gets to you know large extent and the gut is able to digest and use it afterwards.
1: And really that's a good example that sort of also follows the model of what's called oral immunotherapy. It used to be thought that people who for example had severe peanut allergies uh, just that there was no hope that they just had to take immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their life and children you know who were vulnerable to this just had to you know stay away from even the slightest dust from peanuts in the air, but then there was some really good research showing that very gradually reintroducing an allergen like peanut under the tongue in extremely minute amounts allowed uh, the immune system to learn to tolerate it uh, to the point where there was no problem anymore. I think that's that's another good example of that gradual exposure
0: That's an interesting one because that's where the immune system is overactive in response to a stressor. yeah, And then you're teaching it to just be balanced. So it's kind of like a a slightly different twist to it.
1: Yeah. Well, while we're talking about allergies and autoimmune disease, I think it's it's very relevant to point out this recent book that I got very excited about called An Epidemic of Absence by Moises Velasquez-Manoff. And he really updated the Hygiene hypothesis, which a lot of people are familiar with, which basically holds that allergy and autoimmune diseases have um, become prevalent in the Western world ever since we've instituted a lot of hygiene measures and cleanliness, and since people have moved off of farms, and paradoxically, uh, while we've conquered infection, allergy and autoimmune have gone up, and the idea is that somehow um, we're not getting exposed to allergens. But what Manaf does is, in his book, um, couches this in terms of what's called the old friend's hypothesis. And the idea is that we co-evolved with um, commensal organisms, you know, in our gut, parasites um, that we lived with. And basically, for evolutionary reasons, we outsourced some of the functions of our immune system to those organisms. Um, and that sort of took some of the work away that, that our own immune systems have to, had to do. But now that we've pretty much banished them through better hygiene, We don't have parasites anymore. Our diets have changed the the microbiota in our guts. We wash ourselves. We don't have the benefit of the the service that they were providing. And so all we're left with is an undertrained immune system with the sort of reserve or emergency system, the IgE system that just goes crazy whenever it has the slightest insult. And so the idea is let's reintroduce some of the old friends but what's particularly interesting in the book is he goes through one autoimmune or allergy disorder after another and shows that there's sort of a critical period in infancy or, or childhood where if you don't get that exposure, you're prone to, um, to these autoimmune disorders.
0: So that's the idea of balance again. It keeps coming back to this balance. And, you know, this is why I wanted you to come on and talk about this, because you've actually tried to identify a balance for hormesis uh, using heart rate variability. In my own experience, I've had, for instance, like a back injuries and I've had uh, various things where you wanna get stronger, you wanna recover, and you understand that this concept of hormesis can help you as you pointed out with your eyesight, right? But if you push it too far, you potentially go backwards rather than forwards. It's the same as like if you, my friend from, the, from university who was going to the gym and pushing it too far and is actually going backwards instead of forwards. And in my training over the years, experimenting with different things, I've often done that as well and figured out that I needed more recovery and I didn't have this balance. And I've eventually come back to trust numbers. So I thought it was interesting that you were using heart rate variability to look a little bit as understand if the hormetic effect was having a a positive impact or not.
1: Sure. Now, I know you're a big biomarker guy. You like numbers. And I'm a little bit more on... Cautious about that. I, I would certainly like there to be a magic number that I could follow. I've done a little bit of experimentation with uh, glucose meter, which kind of helped me understand how I responded to diet and exercise in terms of glucose, and I found it a little bit useful, but also potentially misleading. Um, I have friends who are sort of in the quantified self movement who measure just about everything and kind of I think go overboard with it. But one thing I've seen is that it's very hard to uh, take a single number in isolation because there's always exceptions or what you might be looking at is, is not a cause, but a consequence. So it's difficult, but, uh, I stumbled on heart rate variability. What I like about it is it's not just some random measurement of some intermediate metabolite in your body, which may reflect oxidation or inflammation, but, uh, you know, who's to say what the right level is. Um, in the case of heart rate variability, you're actually measuring something very close to real function. And what I found before finding HRV is to try as much as possible to look at functional measures of strength or performance. So,
0: sure, could you give an example?
1: Well, okay, so vision is pretty easy, right? You can read a Snellen chart and see you when you when you lift weights, you, you know how much weight you're lifting. So these are when you run, you can use uh, speed, right? Right. These, these are very objective things. Um, but what I like about HRV, so you know, what do you do in terms of just overall metabolic health? Is there a is something that sums it up? And I think HRV. Would you
0: just take a step back there and clarify? So when you were talking about the running and the speed, and you were talking about if it's if it's improving, then what you're doing is having a good positive hormetic effect, right? But if it's going backwards, if you're taking longer times. Um, then you know that you're going backwards just to clarify for the unit.
1: Exactly, and there's no question. You're either, you know, if you're overtraining and, and you're running slower, then okay.
0: Right, yeah, if you're lifting less weight, which, which happened to me with many of my experience back in the days, I'd be basically lifting less and you go like, okay, something's not going right here.
1: Right, so you'd like to find something like that for just overall metabolic health and that, that's a harder one, right? You, maybe you feel good, but subjective feelings may not be the whole thing. So what I like about HRV, heart rate variability, is I think it's sometimes kind of not fully understood what it is. You know, we, what it is essentially is the variation in the heartbeat. You can have a low heart rate, but if the heart rate is hitting exactly once per second, that's got no variability, right? So why is variability a good thing? Um, and apparently it is. Apparently, people who are very fit have a higher rate heart rate variability, which means there's more variation. Sometimes their heart will be. 1.05 seconds and then 0.9 and then 1.03 and then 0.85. And then you look at the standard deviation of that or some transformation of that. And the more variation beat to beat there is, the better it is. But you would think, why is that good? Because we know of arrhythmias as being um, signs of pathology. And certainly at some, at some level they are.
0: Could you just, what is an arrhythmia?
1: arrhythmia would be not having an exactly precise, uh, you know, regular beat, having some irregularity to it. And there's different, there's different deviations from, from the regular. So the question is, why is it good to have this variability? And I was kind of searching for this, but I, I read this book. It's an older book by James Gleick called Chaos. It's written in the 80s about um, – and Chaos really describes what are called nonlinear systems – which underlie a lot of what's going on in in biology or in the brain and in society. There's a lot of sort of effects that don't just aren't just additive, but interact with each other in very complex ways. So he had this, uh, I I think this insight, which is basically nonlinear processes are necessary for homeostasis for, for sort of the ability to handle a stress or deviation and come back into control. If you have a linear system, uh, and you give it a slight nudge, you, you cause some perturbation to it, it tends to go off course and stay off course. In nonlinear systems, they have all these interactive components, and if you give it a nudge, it tends to return to a center or what they call an attractor in, in mathematical terms. In biological terms, if you are uh, if you have a fever, your body acts to to cool yourself. If, you're, if the blood pH drifts, there's something that pulls it back. If you eat a big meal and your blood glucose comes on, gets too high the insulin turns on and brings it back within range so there's these feedback systems that tend to um, bring you back to center so what's interesting is that you've got these two systems which work in cooperation the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system right and the parasympathetic system is generally the one that kind of uh, calms you down and, and gives you this resilience whereas the sympathetic is the fight or flight which you need to energize yourself but if it goes too strong it can, can cause stress high cortisol and eventually the parasympathetic system has to bring you back down to normal after you've met the stressor some type of event that you have to deal with now if you are adaptive you can switch between these two systems readily and the key one is the parasympathetic one because the sympathetic one tends to drive just very strongly and, and calming down or bringing changing your ability to go at full strength, and then slower and, and adapt to the day is really a sign of adaptive strength. Um, if you look at people who are older and have Parkinson's and walk very stiff or rigid, and you measure their gait or their heart rate, it's very regular, very stiff, it doesn't deviate. If you surprise them, shock them, you know, ask them to suddenly run or something, they have a great difficulty shifting into that higher gear and people who are stressed out likewise have great difficulty turning down the stress and shifting so it's a sign of health to be able to shift gears quickly and be adaptive and essentially that's what HRV is is measuring it's the uh, if your heart rate naturally can sort of move around to these different frequencies then it can quickly tune into the faster one or the slower one it can move quickly if it's locked into a steady beat it's just harder for it to change. And I think this manifests itself in in a lot of ways.
0: So you see yeah, so you see, as a measure of your ability to adapt to stressors, which is actually similar to some of the other discussions we've had. Um, I, I don't know if you've tried this, but if you looked at your HRV when you're lying down versus you're standing up. So in our first episode, Andrew Flat was talking about how standing up is a slight stressor. So you can see how it impacts the HRV and you have a slightly different score And you're basically applying a very, very slight stressor to yourself just by standing.
1: Yeah. And people even look at how quickly can your HRV, when you stand or sit, come back to uh, equilibrium. That's sort of a secondary measure of it. And and athletes who can run and then sit down and bring their heart rate down quickly, you know, are typically the ones who are fit. But if you look at disease states, you know, um, cardiovascular problems, cancer infections, these show up very quickly in reduced HRV, and it's kind of almost a leading indicator of a problem. So it's even been used diagnostically. I think it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. And I find then it's useful also because we're all individuals as a tool for self-discovery. You can find out what tends to drive your HRV up or down. And I, I learned a lot of things that I was very surprised about myself.
0: Yeah, so, so like you, I've been fascinated by this measure, and if you read around, it's it's really applicable to so many useful things as well. I've seen people applying it to willpower. There's, there's studies on willpower, and of course, we all we all want more willpower. There's a whole range of uses for this. But what have you specifically, you know, applied it to and found that was most interesting?
1: Yeah, well, I tried a lot of things relating to exercise and found sort of the normal things that athletes find, which is that when you work out very intensely. It, drives the HRV down and it it takes a while to come back up. And when it's back up, you know, you're, you're rested and ready to go. Okay. So that's what everybody knows. But then, um, I just tried different, uh, foods and didn't really notice a big effect, except the one thing I did do notice is that I practice intermittent fasting, which means that I eat, you know, one or two meals in a part of the day, typically dinner or lunch and dinner and fast a lot of the rest of the day. And I found that well into the fast, my HRV would tend to go up, and then after a meal, it would go down. So, okay, that was kind of interesting.
0: Did you notice an increase in your baseline? If we talk about the daily, the, the specific time when you're doing the experiment versus changes which tend to be longer term.
1: Oh yes, I definitely have noticed that. And so, uh, let me get to that after. I'll tell you a few specific ones, and then I'll get into the baseline. So that that was a big one. Um, the other really big one, which really surprised me, is. Cold showers, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to get in the cold shower and see what happens. I'm sure what's going to happen is my heart rate's going to go up, which typically means my HRV will go down because they're it's not precise, but they tend to be inversely correlated, right? And I'm a, I'm somewhat adapted to the cold showers. I've been doing them for several years. I get in the shower and actually measure it while I'm in the shower. My heart rate goes down, and my HRV goes up. And I get out of the shower, and it's gone up by ten points. And that's kind of the average. It goes up by ten points, literally within. 3 to 5 minutes and it stays high the whole day which also also corresponds to my subjective feeling that it which cold showers are a real mood elevator for me unlike caffeine or sugar or whatever which is kind of a quick thing and then it fades i do that and then i'm good for the whole day and it's consistent and it's a big effect so that was a big positive effect so fasting and cold showers are kind of the, the two things that really drive it up
0: Right. And then, so the cold there is a cold exposure, basically. So it's a minor yes, cold.
1: Cold exposure. So, you know, I get into pretty cold shower and I'm in there for several minutes. And I used to, when I started it, I would shiver quite a bit, but that only lasts a little bit. And then I...
0: So that's a pretty cold shower. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh and I, I do ocean swimming and things like that, which really uh, is fun. But then, so then I found some negatives. And of course, I found that if it worked out really intense... I could drive my HIV down really low, which worried me, but you know, it it would come back. Hot tubs that are really hot would also drive it down. And the other thing that would really drive it down was alcohol, usually would be maybe two or three drinks. One drink didn't have much effect, but two or three drinks um, would really drive it down.
0: Is this for like a few hours, like say for the rest of the day?
1: A few hours or the evening. And then I, th- I thought about this. Now, this is really interesting. I thought, wow, the cold showers surprised me because I thought that's definitely going to get my heart rate up. It didn't. And alcohol, that'll, that'll make me relax. So my heart rate will slow, right? And my HRV will go up. No, my heart rate goes up. And basically the body is is, is trying to deal with the alcohol by, you know, it's a depressant. So it's trying to fight that. And you're impairing yourself. And I think. This is, was a real insight because, you know, what is HRV? It's your resilience. It's your ability to take on the next stress. And you may think after you've had a few beers that you're, you can handle things, but actually you handle them a lot more poorly. Like, I mean, driving, of course, is an example, but your judgment goes way down.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because, for example, if you're, you see a lot of fights with alcohol, for example. Yeah, right. You know, and that's because people are not able to adapt to them. They're overreacting, not able to deal with emotional stressors around them.
1: Yeah, yeah, their judgment goes way off. So basically, these things that are kind of relaxing can impair HRV, and then things that are stimulating, you know, the cold shower, fasting, which also tends to sharpen your focus, um, help the HRV. But so then the other effect is these are the immediate effects. But then,
0: so what was it just like going back to the heat exposure? I do saunas, uh, infrared saunas, and I've been doing that daily for the heat shock protein benefits, amongst others. I don't know if you've done that and you, unfortunately, I didn't track the HRV specifically around that. I'm going to have to start doing that to, to see what happens. Uh, would you think that would be similar to the hot bath or?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think so. But here's here's the other half of the story, because these are the immediate effects, right? Things that you notice like within hours or minutes. But then you've got to look at the compensatory effect of what happens later. So, for example, exercise Obviously, impairs your fitness temporarily, but you wouldn't do it if one of the reasons you do it is to become stronger and get fitter. And so you do it, and then the next day your HRV is actually a little bit higher, or it may take two days or whatever the recovery period is. So there's almost like this ratcheting effect where you, you temporarily drive it down and then it kind of comes back up to an even higher level. And I think that's, that's pretty interesting. So the question is which things work that way and which things are just direct? So the cold showers, it brings the HIV up, and then I don't see a a fading of that. Exercise, I see it going down, and then it comes up stronger. And I think hot tubs and saunas are a little bit that way, where it drives it down, but I think um, it actually can improve.
0: Do you think this could be in relation to the way your body perceives the intensity of the stressor? Maybe heat is a larger stressor than cold. So, you know, your cold shower, it just happens that it's at the right balance?
1: It may be. And also, you know, heat at some level is relaxing. Another level is a stressor. So it may be the degree. And it's similar with alcohol. It, I didn't moderate alcohol didn't have the same effect as.
0: Yeah. So if you have had like a tiny sip of alcohol, potentially your HRV could have risen a little bit, a
1: little bit more. So so hmm. let's go to the baseline question. You said, so what happens? Hmm. So I have actually increased my baseline HRV over a couple of months significantly there's a lot of noise and fluctuation if you look at my graph, but what I did is I'm careful not to overtrain. So I noticed that that can really set me back. Mm -hmm. And then with alcohol, I've realized that, you know, actually one or two drinks is that I, I feel the buzz. I'm it's it's social. It's fine. And I really cut myself off there and, and I drink less and that's really helped the HRV come up quite a bit. So it's, I'm just kind of paying attention to the things that really set me back. That's probably the main change. And then it's come up about 10 points.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's important to point out also that as like, as you age, it gets lower. So there's another reason you kind of want, you know, the baseline to be going up rather than going down. It's As you said earlier, it's an indicator of general health. But, you know, as age also, um, so you could say biological aging. Right. Right. So I've uh, noticed with intermittent fasting, that's the one where – I've been looking at it the most and I've done uh, basically, I did like, you know, uh, one month on intermittent fasting and then two weeks off and then uh, back to intermittent fasting again. And I'm about 10 points higher pretty much every day. It takes a little bit, bit it takes a few, you know, a little while to climb back up to where it was if I stop intermittent fasting. But after about a week, um, it tends to be about 10 points higher than when I'm not intermittent fasting. So that's just just about Three, three months of data uh, so far but you know for me it seems and i feel of course i mean a lot of people talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting um but you know i feel much better um you know much more energy throughout the day and so on so
1: well one thing i did that really drove it up of course you can't do this all the time i took a vacation
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's important. It went way up <laughs> wow. so
1: obviously i that was useful <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that's a, like a really important point you bring out here because especially, you know, you're from the US and uh, very well known for either not taking any holiday um, or you have your standard two weeks, I believe, in, yeah. in the US. Right. Um, but of course, like many people like working in corporate are known for not taking their holidays at all. And if you see a big increase in HIV like that, that's a really big sign. You're probably really overdoing it and you need to emphasize more some, some time out. Sure. I don't know if you like if you come out. I don't know if you, like, if you thought of it that way, um, like when you saw those yeah, numbers. Yeah, it's hard or like, to say. Oh, maybe I, I, should do this I, I tend to, um, or,
1: to lead a, a life that's, even though it's busy, I don't feel stressed out. I really um, I feel in, in balance. And so I, I, I wasn't feeling overworked. But, of course, maybe maybe I was fooling myself.
0: I mean, this is the beauty of trying to quantify stuff. Because I think we do, I'll give you an example. My dad, um, he, he's, you know, he's a workaholic, he always has been. And so he doesn't, like when he goes on holiday, he falls asleep. And my impression is that he's kind of like str- highly strong. So he's working and I feel the same way when I'm working. And I've often had the case where I'm working really hard and then I'll take a holiday and I'll get sick when I'm on holiday. And, and it's kind of like, you know, your body is just try- trying to manage the day to day. And while you're stressed, it's, it's dealing with it. But as soon as it has an opportunity to let go. <laughs> It'll be like, okay, I can recover now. I can be a bit sick. And... Isn't
1: that true? That's a common effect. You, you finish your exams and you come home and, and you get a flu, right? Yeah, but, but my vacations tend to be somewhat active. You know, I did, did cycling, body surfing, running. And so I, was, I wasn't just sitting on the couch all day either. But, but I was enjoying, I was really enjoying myself. That was the key.
0: Great. Some great insights there. Um, besides, have you just found any other areas uh, that as HRV has been useful besides? we've already spoken about
1: you know there is um i think was dave asprey has written something and he has a little company and an app he's created to use hrv to detect food sensitivities
0: yes uh they're actually they're using heart rate we actually had rhonda collier on the last episode she's the uh, ceo of sweetwater who's behind that app exactly that one's based on pulse rate um but they do she does some very interesting stuff on the stress side, uh, splitting out the frequencies. And I haven't played around with the app a lot on the stress side, but I think that's got you know something. But I think you have to get into it quite a bit to find some benefits, but she certainly has over time. She's been using it for a very long time. Yeah, so um, coming back to the whole hormesis side, I don't know if there's any other biomarkers besides HRV. Um, you've mentioned the difficulties of trying to assess, basically saying like how much oxidative stress you need versus not, it's very hard to say what's going to be beneficial versus what's going to be overwhelming for your body, which is why you're looking at the end point, the end result.
1: Yeah. The functional endpoint. you know, what really matters in terms of performance. Uh,
0: so obviously you brought up some others, uh, which are more specific to whatever you're doing, like how fast you're running and so on. Is there anything else you've come across, which you found useful for looking at hormesis and how to balance it?
1: Not, not in terms of, you know, quantitative measures, uh, Yeah, I think there's, you know, we've really in this discussion focused a lot on the physical side of of hormesis, but I think it applies quite well also to psychology and to sort of the spiritual side of of health. And uh, because really, you know, what is stress, but it's, there's physical stresses, but what we're really talking about is your reaction to events, right? And so um, how you handle stress, um, uh, I think is very important to health. And there's this concept out there that We're overstressed, that modern life causes uh, not just physical, but psychological elements because of too much stress. I think what they're talking about there is is chronic, repetitive, daily stress. We're not handling well. But I think the underappreciated side of stress is that we need it. And in particular, we need it at a certain frequency, in a certain natural context. And we need an intense stress. Our body, we evolved to be able to handle it. And if we, if we protect ourselves from psychological stress, we actually become more vulnerable to it. I think that um, exposing yourself to intense physical exercise actually makes you more psychologically resilient. But I think it's also important to, um, to confront fears, anxieties and, and push yourself to higher levels and also to become comfortable with discomfort just in general. Uh, in fact, even there's sort of a psychological benefit to things like uh, cold showers in that you're, you're throwing yourself into what you perceive to be an intensely uncomfortable, disagreeable situation, and you're, you're pushing through it, and you develop um, more resilience to it.
0: That's right. You don't. So because I mean, you talk about this on your blog, and I started doing the cold showers, as I mentioned to you, and you say you have to first times you're doing it, you're tensing your muscles and you're, you're psychologically preparing yourself for it. And it is quite a horrible shock, you know, um, when you start, but later on, it, you stop really noticing it. I mean, I found this after about, you know, a, f- a few weeks or something. And I expect, uh, I guess, that's what you found over the time. Would you still find you react a little bit to the, the shock of the cold?
1: Yeah, and it's, it's less and less. And there's this, this theory, um, you know, called the opponent process theory of emotion that Solomon and others sort of pioneered. and Solomon was looking at, he was trying to explain addiction and uh, also um, thrill-seeking. And he said, these are really sort of the the opposite sides of the coin. You know, a a thrill-seeker, somebody who does skydiving, the first time they do it, they're confronted with this intense, paralyzing fear. It's uncomfortable. When they land, though, there's this kind of euphoric afterglow that tends to last for a lot of the day. But the more they do it, the event itself becomes actually less and less uncomfortable and the afterglow effect becomes stronger and stronger. And so it becomes pleasurable. Cold showers. It's it's a little bit like that. Exercise can be like that. And he said, you know, it's the flip side of addiction. In addiction, people pursue a direct pleasure, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, whatever it is, it gives, it gets their dopamine going right away but then when they stop it, there's kind of this down or withdrawal. And he said it's the reverse where the more they do it, they become tolerant to the pleasure and and it's less fun, but the down becomes greater. And so they they get into this addictive cycle because they they just need to do the addictive activity just to get back to normal. So exposing yourself to hormetic stress is kind of the opposite of addiction. And, And it ends, what I find is it, It makes you more resilient to just daily stressors, you know, arguments, things that come up at work. It increases what I call like my background level of pleasure. I mean, I'm just basically always happy and things don't throw me off or bum me out. And I think it's because by forcing yourself to expose to these intense stresses, you you develop this resilience. It's something that's kind of gone away from the kind of lives that people, you know, pioneers and who, who lived in, in, uh, away from civilization, had to face these natural stressors, you know, the weather, hardship, lack of food, moving around, and the fact that we're more protected and we, we live in an environment that's so regulated from stress, I think we, we fail to develop the, this resilience. And so by engaging in some of these activities, I think you get an enormous psychological benefit in addition to the, the purely physical one.
0: Right, right. So that's a, that's a great overview. Basically, the way you're, you're approaching hormesis is like, if you can do this in lots of different aspects of your life, then it, they're all kind of tying together into your organism. And and HRV is a like an endpoint measure, which is global. So it's useful because it's like, you know, if my HRV is higher today, I'm going to be more resilient to emotional stress, you know, no, no matter what it is. Um, if I have to be motivated to do something or, or take on a, a new challenging task, like if I've got higher HRV, some days then it's probably going to be an easier day to start something new i've been looking at that a bit because i've heard about this but i haven't i don't know if you have um when you notice if your hrv is high if you find it easier to start more challenging tasks or or take on conflicts or you know any of these kind of more mental challenges i don't know if you notice anything about that
1: definitely i think that's the case
0: great great so um what what you're doing in terms of your routine Uh, And where you use biomarkers or you don't, you know, you've already talked a little bit about where you see them useful and and not. But on a week to week basis, what kind of things are you tracking in your life?
1: Quantitative things.
0: Right, right. Whether it be HRV or or what's kind of your routine of using any type type of data about your health?
1: I would love for there to be an app that really gave me information that I found useful and used all the time. And I understand, you you know, companies like Apple are sort of moving into that space. And there's, of course, a lot of devices out there. So I'm always interested in them, but I just haven't been convinced in their utility. And I'm also a little bit hesitant to become too tied to tracking. I, and I, I want to be much more tuned to my actual experience and try to find ways to use that as much as possible. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, an advocate also of, of, of simplifying one's life and relying as little as possible on external things, whether they be glasses or supplements or, or devices, so that I can be uh, fully present But if I can find a few things to track and if they're pretty robust, I'll go for them. So HRV is probably, I mean, I was experimenting with with glucose monitor. That was helping a little bit, but I didn't find it necessarily reliable. So the HRV is maybe the closest I've found so far, although I don't know that I'm in a level where I fully trust it yet. So I don't know if if there's any that you find um, particularly useful.
0: Yeah, I track a lot of stuff and I kind of bring new ones in and then and throw them out as you know as they become inconvenient there's also I mean one of the biggest challenges I think right now is the convenience
1: sure
0: um, if we had a watch which or some some device which tracked everything accurately in the background it would be really easy to have you know interesting data but to, to answer on, on the HRV I use the a- uh, averages seven day rolling averages because it does go up a little bit and down there's a little bit of variance in it yeah and and also in just in the way you're measuring it you can introduce little little differences based on you know emotional stress and and, and other aspects so you got to watch a little bit for that so i find the you know i'm really watching close more closely the 7 day rolling average
1: i tend to agree to you. i think the the weekly average is just about right that seems to correspond to something that i see as a real shift
0: yeah And then, you know, I I feel remarkably different when I'm 10 points higher (laughs) on that average. So that's what I'm trying to do, get it as high as possible. So just out of interest, like, um, I don't know if you're lying down or you're, you're standing up, what HRV score you?
1: Yeah. So I do it sitting and I'm using the RM SSD, the natural log times 20. So on that scale, I'm typically in the range of, uh, in the morning, 70 to 80 and, uh, Although on really good days, I've actually hit 90, which doesn't happen very often. And on sort of off days, I might be in the 60s. But I would say I'm typically bouncing around between 70 and
0: 80. Right, right. You're doing a bit better than me. I I don't get up to the 90s. My highs are the 80s. I'm normally between 70 and 80 uh, when I'm intermittent fasting. Otherwise, I can be between like 65 and 75, maybe a a little bit lower. 60 to 70, and I'll go as low as the 50s on bad days. But I'm actually dealing with some health issues, so I think that's responsible for that mess.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself an athlete. I'm, I just sort of consider myself generally fit for being um, 58 years old. So um, to me, as long as it's sort of in that range, I'm, I'm happy. And as an indicator that if it's, it's sort of a warning sign, if it were to plunge, I would start to look into it.
0: When my mind plunges, I take the day off. I've, I've had some like really crazy crashes. And sometimes I don't know what, what what's going on. And it's like you got a virus or something. I got a crazy flu virus from uh, my nephew just recently. Yeah, it took me out for a week. But I knew about it <laughs> the day it was hitting because of the HIV. Um, even if I felt not so bad in the morning. Um, but the HIV showed it beforehand.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. Fatigue, infection, it picks those things up right away. And intoxication,
0: <laughs> alcoholic intoxication. <laughs> well, Todd, thank you so much for your insights today about hormesis, which is you know, it's a, it's, it's a really very broad and, and interesting framework to look at, you know, all sorts of things that we can be doing to improving our bodies in terms of performance and, and so on. And your experience with HIV, it's been very interesting to hear. Well,
1: I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at Damien at TheQuantifiedBody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at TheQuantifiedBody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.